At last year's Globesec conference in Bratislava, the focus was almost exclusively on Ukraine, and understandably so. It was barely three months since Russia had launched its full-scale onslaught against Ukraine, a neighbour of Slovakia. The opening address of Globesec 2022 was delivered by Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky via video link from Kiev. The Foreign Desk returned to Globesec this week, while Globesec 2023 was also inevitably heavily Ukraine-focused, there was greater consideration of the global implications of the conflict, in two locations in particular. One, another of Ukraine's neighbours, Belarus, the other, much further away, Taiwan. Belarus recently agreed, and that agreed should be heard in inverted commas, to host Russian tactical nuclear missiles, apparently part of President Alexander Lukashenko's attempt to render himself useful to his Russian counterpart-slash-overlord Vladimir Putin. Taiwan has, of course, been paying careful attention to Ukraine. Like Ukraine, Taiwan is regarded as a temporarily rogue province by a much larger power. In this special episode of The Foreign Desk, recorded at Globesec, we'll hear from Taiwan's Deputy Foreign Minister, the exiled leader of Belarusian opposition, and a former Ukrainian MP, now head of the Democracy in Action Conference. Is the Lukashenko regime entrenched or imperiled by closer ties with Russia? What has Taiwan learnt from Ukraine's selling of its story to the world? And how is Ukraine faring 16 months into its resistance? This is The Foreign Desk. Defeating the enemy in Ukraine is a powerful signal to China to deter Chinese ambitious also to rule in the world. Ukraine is in Europe. The war is against European values. The war against humanity. Ukraine's war is having direct implication on what China's future responses to regarding Taiwan. Even though Taiwan and Ukraine are thousands of kilometers apart, but in terms of security discussions, these are kind of mirror issues that when you talk about Ukraine, you have to address also. Of course, the fate of Ukraine and fate of Belarus are interconnected. We have the same enemy, imperialistic ambitions of Russia. Russia doesn't see no Ukraine or Belarus as independent states. And the war in Ukraine cannot be over until Belarus is free. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, we'll hear from Roy Chun-Li, Deputy Foreign Minister of Taiwan, and from Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, Belarusian opposition leader. Our first guest is Hannah Hopko, head of the Democracy in Action Conference and former Ukrainian MP and head of the Ukrainian Parliament's Committee on Foreign Affairs. I began by asking Hannah how it feels in Ukraine 16 months into the war and what kind of effect the conflict is having on Ukraine's people. Russian ongoing aggression against Ukraine is an attack on humanity. And of course, people in Ukraine suffering a lot, and especially families with kids. What's happening uh, 16 months and especially last days, a massive bombarding of many cities of Ukraine and especially in Kiev. And this night, even being here in Bratislava, but I couldn't sleep because still on my phone there is alarm system. 
and also part of my family, my colleagues, friends are in Kiev. Uh, so this is really important that for people to restore belief that democracy prevail because actually after almost eight years of peaceful settlement of Russian aggression, eight years Ukraine was under pressure, don't ask weapon, because mm. Minsk Agreement 1, Agreement 2, at Normandy format, higher level, presidential level, we will solve the Russian aggression. But we ended up with a full-scale war, with massive, almost everyday cruise ballistic missiles with kamikaze drones against us. So, of course, my daughter, she is 12 years old. She asked me a question before leaving Ukraine, uh, before February 24, 2020. Mom, why, after eight years of all your efforts to defeat Russia, I'm forcibly leaving Ukraine, and you are staying in Kyiv with the risk to be killed in case of the occupation? So we failed with this approach, and Russia is committing genocide. So this is why I think it's really important for us to understand that it's not just the war of Putin against Ukraine and us. It's about Russian imperialism, because Russian society also supported this aggression. And compared to brave Iranian women, which were protesting, compared to brave Afghanistan women. So they were protesting. So I think it's really important for us to talk about how to defeat Russian imperialism first. I visited Taiwan last October, and we have several projects now with Taiwanese government, and they are helping Ukraine a lot, and we are so thankful. And we understand also one of the pragmatic reasons of course, we are brothers and sisters in fight with aggressors, authoritarian regimes, but also they understand that defeating the enemy in Ukraine is a powerful signal to China to deter Chinese ambitious also to rule in the world and especially to start from in the Pacific region or to attack Taiwan. And what I don't like to hear, like, it's a war against Ukraine. It's not like one minister today of Austria or Austria said that it's not a European war. Ukraine is in Europe. The war is against European values. The war against humanity. Do you have a sense that the country is being changed in any particular fundamental way, whether for good or for ill, and whether out the other side of this, Ukraine will be a different kind of country than it was going into it? So, of course, the resistance and resilience of our people is amazing. The same like fighting spirit of our armed forces, territorial defense, local communities. So this is the moment when everyone is contributing to a common cause and future victory. Uh, people donating money to the armed forces. People helping internally displaced people which lost everything because there are cities and villages in Ukraine fully destroyed. And of course, we have to start talking about trauma because many people traumatize. And now almost in every family, in each family, we have someone either killed or wounded or uh, now defending country in the armed forces. So. This is why I think we have to start preparing a policies, what to do with more than one million and a half of mobilized people, what to do with veterans, how to integrate them, how to provide 
jobs for them, how to invent new ways of integrating them into society after being traumatized or have these psychological different issues. So this would not be easy. Of course, we understand all these challenges which are ahead of us. But I think with international humanitarian aid, support, different projects, we could uh, keep building strong, resilient society after the war because we will be all busy with rebuilding our cities. So I think it's really important that we are building these bridges between Ukrainian local communities and communities in Germany, in the UK, and Belgium, Italy. So this is really important that this war about humanity prevails because people are helping each other. And it doesn't matter. These people are in Taiwan, in Japan, or in uh, African countries or in India, not just Europe, even if the war is in European continent. But I think we should consider it's much global. Just finally, and this is a question, I guess, relating to your time as Foreign Affairs Committee Chair of, of Ukraine's parliament. And it's as far as foreign affairs go, it is not that foreign because it is about the country next door. And the one thing that can be predicted out the other side of this conflict is that Ukraine will always have a border with Russia. Ukraine and Russia will always be neighbours. Do you get the sense that Ukraine's government is giving any thought at all to what that relationship could be like in future so a situation like this does not arise again? So Ukraine, as a 33rd member of NATO, (laughs) Ukraine as a member of European Union, during my service as a head of the Foreign Affairs Committee, we incorporated into our constitution the membership in NATO and the EU as a key strategic foreign policy goals. So I can imagine <laughs> Ukraine contributing to global security, being a member of NATO. <laughs> I would <laughs> like to see the behavior of our neighbor. But also with uh, this regime change as a part of de-imperialization of Russia and also through tribunal and Russian society paying reparations for everything Russians done against us and destroying and killing our people. So this is like Nazi Germany after the World War II. German society, only after reparations, bear this economic burden. They shared the responsibility, moral responsibility, because criminals who conducted war crimes, crimes against humanity, they should be held accountable, and including Putin and Shoigu and all this leadership. But I think Russian society should also understand. And also, as I mentioned every time, I do believe one day I will visit Moscow, the Red Square, and there will be two memorials. First, it's a memorial to condemn the genocide conducted by Stalin, a man-made Holodomor genocide, and second, conducted by Russian Federation in 21st century. Because when you see in the Red Square Lenin in mausoleum or the monument of Stalin, Look, this is not the heroes that Russians should respect. So I think this is really important, this historical justice. And this is why Russian society, the future generations, plus you never know what could happen with Russia. It seems like in UK people and in US, Kyiv chicken speech, no one was ready for Soviet disintegration. But Chechen republics, they proclaim independence. And now there are many people from representing the indigenous peoples and also republics uh, from Dagestan, Ichkeria, uh, Udmurtia, Mordovia, Tatarstan, Bashkortostan, they joined Ukrainian armed forces. Because in the victory of Ukraine, they consider a window of opportunity. They don't want Russian system 
totalitarian system to grab their resources and when they are living in poverty. It's also about justice for them. Decentralization reform, which we are successfully implementing in Ukraine, should be shared in Russian Federation as well. That was Hannah Hopko, head of the Democracy in Action Conference, speaking to us at the Globesec Bratislava Forum. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. You're listening to a special episode of The Foreign Desk recorded at Globesec in Bratislava. Our next guest is Dr. Roy Chun-Li, Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs of Taiwan. I began by asking why it is valuable for a Taiwanese delegation to attend a European security conference. Well, first of all, today's topic at Globesec is all about Ukraine. And when you talk about Ukraine, inevitably you have to talk about China's role. And that relates also to what happened on the other side of the world, that is the Taiwan-China relationship. So I think the general consensus, as I was being here for the last two days, is that Ukraine's war, especially our collective efforts to assist Ukraine to defend their homeland, is having direct implication on what China's future responses to regarding Taiwan. Right. So. Even though Taiwan and Ukraine are thousands of kilometers apart, but in terms of security discussions, these are kind of mirror issues that when you talk about Ukraine, you have to address also Taiwan. So my presence here is that I will be able to provide up-to-date information on what is happening in the Taiwan Strait, what's Taiwan's people and the government thinking about China and about the future and what's our responses to those potential uncertainties, and more importantly, what European countries and beyond can do with Taiwan to prevent, to make the same mistakes as we are seeing in Ukraine. Those parallels between Taiwan's situation and Ukraine's situation have been much remarked upon, and they are pretty obvious that you have a, an enormous neighbour which sees the smaller country as a temporarily rogue province. But when Taiwan has watched what has happened in Ukraine over the last 15 or 16 months, what lessons have you drawn from it in terms of how Ukraine has defended itself militarily, but perhaps just as importantly, how Ukraine has told its story to the world? What have you learned from that? I think, first of all, many people argue that the war is because Putin made an irresponsible decision to attack. But actually, if we look back in the last 10 uh, years, it's an aggregation of mistakes we made collectively as a democratic community in deterring Russia. So Russia's action in Georgia back in 2008, Crimea in 2014, and the appeasement approach or, or indifferences remoners from democratic community actually kind of encouraged Putin to make even bolder and more ambitious act. So. In a sense, we are also responsible and contribute to Putin's decision-making process. So I think the most important lesson we learn is that, first of all, Taiwan is not defending for ourselves. It's just like Ukraine. We are also defending, standing on the front line, defending the very values and the very systems that we are trying to defend. That's the first thing. And second thing is that we are telling people, please, let's work together. Don't make the mistake the second time. The authoritarian regimes are seeing weakness in terms of our unity and solidarity mm. to work collectively to defend our members of this democratic community. 
Isn't there a risk attached to that, though? Because the difference between the two situations, obviously, is that Ukraine is recognised as a sovereign state by almost the entire world, and Taiwan is not. Is there not a risk that if those other countries, which are allied to Taiwan's values, do work more closely with Taiwan and are more vigorous in their defence of Taiwan, that that might actually provoke China to take precipitate action? Well, first of all, China is extremely sensitive to all actions taken by partners that haven't consulted. True enough. So <laughs> we were joking that the very existence of Taiwan is a provocation to Beijing. Mm. Right. So now deterrence comes with two factors. One is threat and preparation. The other is actually assurance. So we are seeing, including Taiwan, providing assurance to China at the same time also preparing ourselves and demonstrating our determination to defend collectively against China's military aggression. The assurance, including the U.S., for example, the statement, latest statement that they will never support Taiwan's independence. The assurance is also coming from Taiwan. You know, the, the ruling party's candidate, uh, Vice President Lai, mm. has been considered as a person who are more pro-independent because of his track record politically. But he has been repeatedly saying in the last two months that if he became the president, he will never declare independence. So I think that's the assurance part. And also, of course, all parties, including the U.S.-Taiwan, are trying to reconnect with China in terms of communication dialogues. So preparation and deterrence, including the threat and assurance, are actually all the efforts to prevent a military conflict rather than provoke a military conflict. To the contrary, underprepared in terms of military, economic, and psychological underpreparation, and also failing to provide assurance are the very factors that attract provocation and further military conflict. Is the idea then, as you see it, or is the best way forward as you see it, that this status quo, this ambiguous nature of Taiwan's status is just maintained forever? You don't see any need at any point in the future to try and force some resolution? We need to define the meaning of status quo. Hmm. Different stakeholders tend to have different definitions. From Taiwan's perspective, the status quo is defined as follows. First of all, China and Taiwan have no jurisdiction over each other. Hmm. So we have been self-determining our political system, uh, economic system, our engagement with partners in the last 70, 80 years. And we would like to maintain that. And that's our understanding of the status quo. It's the factual continuation of the self-decision-making uh, ability. And also the status quo to us is that Taiwan people is the only group that should be consulted and should be the group that will be able to make a decision for our future. And that's exactly what we have been doing in the last 80 years. So we consider that a status quo. To the contrary, China defines status quo in a very different way. First of all, China defines status quo as, first of all, there's only one China. And secondly, Taiwan is part of that one China. So you can see the intrinsic tension between Taiwan and China starts with this different understanding of the status quo. So we are defending the status quo according to our definition. Of course, China sees that as a provocation because our definition is so different. I want to come back to those parallels between Taiwan's situation and Ukraine's. And just 
what Taiwan and what you've talked about in Taiwan about the way that Ukraine has told its own story over the last 16 months. And obviously that has coalesced around the remarkable figure of their president, Volodymyr Zelensky. Has there been talk in Taiwan about how, if China were to make a decision to alter the status quo, how Taiwan would tell your story and who would tell your story to the world? Have you been talking amongst yourselves along the lines of who is our Zelensky? Who do we send out there to represent Taiwan? Well, first of all, we are already starting to tell the stories. My very presence here at GlobalSat is already part of that plan. Actually, uh, we are trying to answer the question, first of all, why Taiwan matters and why standing with Taiwan matters. So basically, we are telling everybody that standing with Taiwan is not for Taiwan, it's also for yourself. We are pursuing probably the least costly approach to deter more expensive and more disastrous outcome. Right. So this is the better option. I don't know who will be Taiwan's President Zelensky. I mean, people act differently <laughs> under different circumstances. So seemingly normal people can become probably Taiwan's President Zelensky in terms of conflict and war. So, but what I'm seeing is that, first of all, we are trying to increase the awareness of the Taiwan people that we need to prepare for the worst case scenario. And we're preparing this actually to prevent it from happening. So we are seeing an increasing number of private NGOs that are organizing training programs to teach people how they should react during time of conflict, where to go, how can they care for each other. And we are also making our plans for strategic stockpiling system, so just where to ration food, energy. I think all these preparation, people are watching. I mean, Taiwan people, and sometimes they don't like they say, well, this is provocation. We shouldn't do anything. But I would say the majority of the population understand why we are doing this, including the extension of the national service time from four months to one year, which is still too short. Our generation, we serve two years. <laughs> anyway, so I think people are watching and they are sharing the sense that, well, we don't like to see this, but that's the reality. Let's get prepared. That's probably much better than unprepared population. The problem is that a lot of political leaders, as well as the population, make decisions only after the crisis. <laughs> but currently, there's no uh, imminent crisis in Taiwan Strait. So that makes all this preparation a little bit difficult. People question, why are you doing this and, and, and other. But I think we are slowly building up the level of resilience. We are not arriving at the time when we need President Zelensky for Taiwan yet. But I'm sure we will have one if there is a real uh, conflict taking place. That was Taiwan's Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs, Roy Chun-Li. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Finally, on today's show, we hear from Svetlana Sikhanovskaya, the leader of Belarus's opposition movement. Svetlana Sikhanovskaya stood in Belarus's presidential election of 2020 after her husband, Sergei Tsikhanovsky, who had been poised to be the main opposition candidate, was arrested. He was subsequently convicted of an assortment of absurd charges and imprisoned for 18 years. I began by asking how Sergei Tsikhanovsky was doing. 
Actually, for three months already, I don't have uh, information about my husband at all. Letters from him to my children are not delivered. The lawyer is not allowed to visit him, so I actually don't know if he is alive or if he is in punishment cell and what's going on. Now we see new strategy of the regime to keep people in prisons in communicado mode. I think it's done, first of all, you know, to keep relatives of political prisons in pressure and also to make political prisons themselves to think that they are forgotten, nobody take care of them, they cannot be able to be provided to, with information what's going on in the war in Ukraine, what's going on with Belarusian democratic movement. So it's one more like additional punishment, you know, for people. One development that has taken place since we last spoke was that you were sentenced by a Belarusian court to 15 years for treason, I think, in absentia in March. Does that mean anything to you at this point after everything else the Belarusian regime has piled on you? No, actually, it doesn't change anything for me. I don't feel any consequences because, you know, I work from exile. I hope that I can feel safe in European countries, but uh, we have to pay attention to those who have real terms, people who are being detained every day in Belarus, 10, 15 people daily in our country are being detained for opposing the regime, for supporting Ukraine, for wearing wrong color of socks, for reading Belarusian newspapers, watching the free media. This is what we have to be disturbed about. Obviously, Russia's attack on Ukraine and the subsequent repressions in Belarus have made things even more difficult for Belarusian opposition, both within and without the country. But do you feel at this point like your campaign for independence, freedom in Belarus is tied to Ukraine's war for its independence? Because I guess what I'm asking is, realistically, can you succeed as long as Putin is still in power? Of course, the fate of Ukraine and fate of Belarus are interconnected. We have the same enemy, imperialistic ambitions of Russia. Russia doesn't see no Ukraine or Belarus as independent states. And the war in Ukraine cannot be over until Belarus is free. So, of course, the victory of Ukrainians, and for sure they will win with assistance and help of the democratic world, uh, the victory will weaken Putin and hence will weaken Lukashenko. And our uh, task of Belarusian democratic forces, of Belarusian people, is to be prepared for this moment, to have built structures, to have strategic plan, what to do in this day uh, X, for example. Yeah? But we also can suppose that changes in Belarus can come earlier than the victory of Ukraine. Uh, because we see turbulence inside the regime, we see how recently weakness or health problems of Lukashenko galvanized people's discussion again, you know, what to do, do we have plan, you know, how to act, you know, what forces will participate. And Lukashenko, three years passed, he for three years tried to suppress people, to humiliate people, to terrorize people, but people's energy is still there. So we uh, understand that in case, for example, let's imagine uh, Lukashenko will die tomorrow. The war in, in Ukraine is still continuing, Lukashenko dies, what will we do in this case? There will be moments of turbulence inside the regime. We have to have our plan, but also we have to be sure that democratic countries also have their view what will be their steps. For example, sometimes now I'm asked by journalists and even some diplomats who will be after Lukashenko. 
it's wrong perception. Your question should be what will we do at that moment to help Belarusians to reach free and fair elections. No matter who will be after Lukashenko, if uh, this person is not chosen by Belarusian people, he's or she's illegitimate. Is there not an extra danger there, though, because there has been some talk, which obviously you would have heard from the Kremlin, about how it might be, as I think they put it, obliged to intervene should there be some sort of uprising against Lukashenko. And Russia now, of course, has the further pretext for intervention of having deployed nuclear missiles on Belarusian soil. Are you concerned that Russia might make an attempt to incorporate Belarus into Russia even more forcibly than it already has? Russia is occupying, secretly like occupying Belarus every day with the loans of Lukashenko. It's Lukashenko who is selling our country piece by piece to Kremlin. Lukashenko doesn't take care about independence or sovereignty of Belarus. He is taking care only about his own power, you know, to seem a strong person, you know, and a leader. And of course, this possible deployment of nuclear weapon is done not to frighten, I don't know, Europe or Ukraine. Of course, it's raising of stakes, we understand this, but it is done to anchor the presence of Russia inside Belarus. You know, because even after changes, it will be difficult to get rid of this nuclear weapon. It will be pretext for Russians to be constantly presented in our country. And that's why we are urging our political ally to do everything possible to prevent this because consequences will be the worst. Look at the point of view from Belarusian people. We as country will be under Russia, you know, in the sphere of influence of Russia for next, I don't know, generations. And we want to be independent. We have to get Belarus out of hands of Russia. But we don't see clear reaction at the moment. Yeah, I understand maybe from a, a side point of view, it doesn't matter where the weapon is in Belarus or in Kaliningrad, you know, it's tactical, strategical, it's not important, but it's important for Belarusian. You like allowing Russia, you know, to take Belarus. Now at the moment for Belarusian people, it's impossible to uprise against this decision because three years of repressions, of intensified repressions, every day 10, 15 people in Belarus are being detained. So now it's impossible to uh, do visible rallies. It will bring new and new victims in our country, but you are powerful democratic countries. You can say your word. Maybe you can't do like anything like with hands, but you can send clear message that you will protect independence of Belarus, independence from Russia. But uh, at the moment, it looks like uh, Belarus is a little bit overlooked, left for one day later, but it's wrong position because uh, Belarus is part of the crisis, and this crisis with Ukraine should be solved in complex. Just wondering, though, how far ahead, how long-term a view you allow yourself to take? Because obviously there's been a lot of talk here and at similar fora over the last 16 months about how quickly Ukraine can be eased into the European Union, eased into NATO. Do you see a future like that for Belarus when Belarus has that choice to make? Uh, Belarusian people feel themselves European nation. We are part of European family of countries. We have to be realistic. Of course, our aim is to be part of reliable alliances. 
But I understand that we have to fulfill so many uh, duties, and like no, reforms. It's a, it's a long way off. Yeah, yeah, it's too premature, you know, to speak about uh, European Union or NATO because I understand that we have to be reliable partner, stable partner, and we have to work hard on changes in our country. But of course, we want to be people who are share the same values, who respect the rule of law, and we want to be our country equal by economic level, by human rights level, as all the European countries. But for many, many years while Lukashenko was governing, he didn't give alternative to people. He always said, Russia is our older brother, you know, we are with Russia. And we hardly ever heard from European Union that Belarusians, you are welcome in our family. Make your choice. You can be part of our family. We'll give you this, this, and this. You have to do this, this, and this. But Belarusian people have never been given such alternative. And now we already see that uh, European Union show that Belarusians, you are part of our family, and Belarusians start to think differently. That was the leader of Belarus's opposition movement, Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya. And that's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. Thanks also to Roger Hilton, Olivia Strapakova and all the team at Globesec. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.